welcome to all of you, and a particular welcome to those of you who have come in specifically for this public discussion today. Several faces here have been with us for the last two days at this Lowy Institute conference, but there are some of you who've come in specifically for this discussion, so a particular welcome to you. Um, my name is Alison Evans, and I'm the director of the Overseas Development Institute, ODI, which is based in London, which is the UK's largest and I think oldest, and we like to say leading international <laughs> policy think tank, uh, working specifically on international development and humanitarian issues. We celebrate our 50th anniversary this year, so we are certainly one of the oldest uh, in the UK. It's my personal privilege to be been asked to moderate this discussion today, the title of which is The Impact of Aid on Development, but I think we are going to try and have a fairly wide-ranging discussion around some of the topics that we've been touching on uh, for the last two days in this Lowy Institute conference. So we'll be touching on issues of the MDGs and aid. But since we have uh, you here in the audience, and before I introduce our panel speakers, um, we wanted to take the opportunity of building actually on a session we've just had and extend new technology to this discussion. So I hope you'll all have noticed that you have a little box on your seat. If you've not noticed, you're probably sitting on it. Um, if you could take a quick look at that. In a moment, I'm going to be walking you through, with the help of our friends at the back there, what you need to do with this little magic box um, that's going to help you uh, contribute to and shape some of the discussion uh, today. Um, before I do that, I'd just like to introduce a very eminent panel we have here to help us discuss some of these critical issues. Um, many, some will be known to you already. Um, let me begin with the Honourable Misa Telefoni uh, Redslav, who is the Deputy Prime Minister of Samoa, as well as Minister of Commerce, Trade, Labour, Industry, and, and, and other important portfolios, and has held a whole number of very important portfolios within the Samoan government. Um, you're welcome. We're very pleased you could do this. Thank you. Right Honourable Bog McMullen, who is known to you, of course, as the Parliamentary Secretary for International Development Assistance here in Australia, um, and also the federal member for Fraser. And to my immediate left, uh, Professor Peter Singer, who again is probably well known to you, uh, home born, homegrown here in Australia, and Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University, and who's also written uh, quite extensively on a range of issues, and most recently on the issue of aid and giving. Uh, so, an eminent panel. Now I'm just going to walk you through what we're going to ask you to do. And with your magic box, your voting box, um, you will see up here on the screen a little bit of information about how you operate it. Basically, we're going to ask for you to help us frame the discussion by voting on some questions that we've pre-prepared for you. Um, and basically, you'll be simply asked to press a button corresponding to your choice uh, in response to that question. Uh, if you make a mistake, then you need to press the C button and re-enter your choice. Uh, there's no enter or send key, so you don't need to make more than one finger press to exercise your choice. Um, and uh, as I say, if you make a mistake, you can always quickly correct it. We're going to take you through two extremely pedestrian questions to give you a chance to practice. Uh, so the first one is for you simply to press the number on your voting 
uh, uh, box that best describes the sector from which you hail, I, the area, the sector of, of professional interest that you have. And we very crudely categorize these as business, stroke private sector, government, non-government, or other. So if you could please vote now and say which sector uh, best describes that which, which coincides with your professional interest. And the clock is ticking. And it will tell us in a moment. There you go. So that's a quick summary of uh, who you all are. Um, you see the power of the power of quick feedback. As I say to my children, we live in the hot, frothy now culture, and I think this is a really good example of that. Next question: uh, Your role. Now we found it difficult to find, find categories that really represented the range of roles. So very crudely, we have four. Uh, are you in management? Are you consulting? Are you broadly in finance in some shape or form? Are you other? Please vote now or give us the number that best describes your role. The mu music is critical. <laughs> it gets the blood flowing. There we go. Very good. I won't ask you to unpack what's in the other. Uh, we could be here all day, but that's a good representation. So you know who's in the room. Very good. Thank you very much. <laughs> now to the serious business. Uh, as I said, we're trying to use this discussion to sort of uh, bring together a number of issues that we've been thinking about over the last two days. And so we're starting off with what is quite a, a tough question, but one in which I hope will reframe uh, some useful debate. Um, and the background, before I get you to vote, the background to this question is this. Uh, in 2000, the international community signed up to the Millennium Development Goals. And I hope that everyone in the room has at least heard of those goals. And those goals have provided a framework, if you like, a manifesto for um, uh, work on development and international development systems since 2000. But the world has also changed rapidly around us since 2000. Uh, today, in 2010, uh, we're, we're, we're facing a much more volatile global economy. We've had the perfect storm of food, fuel, financial crises, and there is the sort of long march of climate change, uh, which we're all uh, acutely aware of, and perhaps uh, no more so in this region. Knowing what we know now about the shape of the global economy, of the kind of rising caseload of global public policy, the question we're going to pitch to you is this. If the international community knew in 2000 what it knows now about uh, the global public policy and the regional public, public policy environment, would it have endorsed the Millennium Development Goals in their current form? I know that's quite a tough question, but as quite a lot of you out there I know who've probably got a view on that. So I'd like you to go ahead now and give us your answer. Yes, no, or don't know. Please vote now. Okay, so instantaneously we can see that 59%, no, sorry, 50% of you think that yes, the MDG framework as conceived in 2000 would look pretty much the same if we were conceiving it now. 36% of you have said no, and then 14% don't know. Can I go straight to you, uh, Telephony? 
would you what do you feel about that statement? Where would you come out on that well, question? Um, the the test question that I was hoping Alison would, would ask you is which country are the world champion sevens team at the moment? Uh, and the, the options would have been New Zealand, Australia, or Samoa. And, and hopefully you, you know that Samoa are the current world champions. We all did. Thank you. Thank you very much. The only reason the All Blacks beat you occasionally, Australia that is, is because they have more Samoans than, than you do. But, I, I, I guess I'd, I'd answer this question this way, and I, and I can understand uh, the way those numbers have come up. Uh, aid is, is giving. So even, the, the, even, even Jesus said in the Bible that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So if you ask the question, is aid good, the answer has got to be yes. The second more important question is, is aid effective? And, and that's the controversial issue uh, right now. And so you, you have to have a measure. So what it was in the year 2000 is that it was quite wisely conceived that there has to be a measure. Otherwise, how can you determine whether aid is effective or not? So some very human uh, criteria came up which were to do with, uh, with people's standards of living, which all aids, uh, all aids should be about uh, standards of living, improving people's uh, standard of living. Now that's that's I think is the basic issue. You have to have a measure. So yes, uh, the Millennium Development Goals are a measure, and, and you can like it or not, at least something that you can measure the effectiveness of your aids uh, to. Then you get down to the recipients of aid, and, and and I have to make the point very strongly in the beginning. It's a partnership. It's it's not a one-way street. It's not just the donors. It's also the developing world who receive the aid. And, and I want to also make the point that, that aid is a privilege and, and not a right. And, and I'm very firm about this. I say it often, and I say it very, very clearly. There's a mentality developing in the third world that somehow or other we're entitled to aid. No, no, aid is something that countries must decide is something that they should do, that it is good to do, and that the results of it are productive. So therefore, the, the donor countries, and especially the taxpayers in those donor countries, they, they need to go along and visit Vanuatu and Samoa and Fiji, and they need to be told by the public that, that what their taxpayer dollars are doing is, is effective. So the, 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 millennium, the Millennium Development Goals are, are, are I think, one way of determining uh, that, 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 that has to be, it has to be good, and, and I think from the case of the recipient countries, what we've got to do is, is, is make sure that we put in sufficient of our resources as well so that these same goals are achieved. And I think uh, the Honorable Bob McMullen made the point this morning in his address where he said, with all the millions that Australia gives Papua New Guinea, it's still only about 4% of their gross, gross national income. So 4% versus 96%, uh, what is the result uh, at the end? But if I can just make one point very quickly, because I, I know we have to keep moving quickly. The, the, the question then is, who is to blame if, if in 1990, uh, between 1990 and right now, or 2000 and right now, you've spent X dollars and you haven't achieved that much in terms of raising people's uh, standards of living? 
it's a question then between the 4% and, and the 96%. But I think at the end of the day, it's not that simplistic. It's a partnership. It has to, it has to, you have to work together. You have to make sure that you build capacity. So we in the recipient countries have got to make sure that we create the macroeconomic stability that is needed so that our private sectors can thrive. We've got to in, improve capacity. But more importantly also, we've got to improve uh, our good governance so that, in fact, the aid dollars are getting honestly spent on what they're intended to be spent on and hopefully they'll achieve the results that they should. Very good, thank you. Um, Bob, on this point uh, that the question raises though, you know, the world has changed a great deal. Uh, the MDGs have become a bit of a fixed framework, if you like, uh, due, to be, due to be realized by 2015. Haven't global events just simply taken over uh, the MDGs in some way? No, I don't think so. I mean, I th but... Uh, I suppose, you know, except I'm a politician, the answer to the question is yes and no. Um, uh, uh, but because, yes, I think there would have been a set of MDGs endorsed if we knew what we know now, but I think they probably would have been a bit different. Um, I think external events would have made them different, and if I had a choice, I'd have made them a bit different myself. Um, but that's probably true of everybody. I mean, that's why... We can't afford to reopen them because we'll wind up with 250 Millennium Development Goals because we all have different priorities. Um, but I think the two things you mentioned would have had, they're both in there, but they've had higher priority. That's food and climate change. I think they'd have been more significant if we were writing them on the basis of knowledge. Now, it's not as if they're excluded, but they'd... And uh, everybody here who's part of the Australian debate would know that if I'd been involved in it, we would have had something about people with disabilities. They are the poorest people in the poorest countries and when you read through you don't find them anywhere and it's a big gap. Uh, let me just to illustrate, we cannot get 100% of kids into school while 5% of kids with disabilities go to school. The arithmetic of that doesn't work. So we have to do something about that and that is what I would have put in if it was up to me. Mm. But uh, I think there would have been a set mainly because of what Mises said, because of their mobilising power about of public opinion. Peter, I mean, that has been one of the remarkable successes of the MDGs, is their mobilising power. But then also they were informed by the Millennium Declaration, which actually was a much more far-reaching commitment that, that talks about rights and freedoms and so forth. And the goals themselves have become a much more reduced version of that. Has that been a problem, do you think? No, I don't think it's been a, a, a real problem. I mean, obviously, this is a huge enterprise. You're not going to get everything right. But I think it was really important that we made commitments in 2000 to things that we could basically agree on. And I think all of these things are uh, incredibly important. Uh, uh, you know, so I think the, the, my answer to the question is basically yes. The only question is it says in their current form. And of course, you know, philosophers like to define questions a bit more. So what exactly do you mean by in their current form? Exactly in their current form? Nothing changed? Well, no, of course, as, uh, as Bob said, you could certainly have more emphasis on climate change, things like that. But, but roughly in their current form, um, yes, I, th I, think, I think we did manage to pick on some really important things about human development. We set ourselves tasks that were realistic. Um, you know, and, and if we don't achieve them in another five years, I think that is something that we're open for criticism on because had we started with the effort, uh, you know, the, the kind of effort that's required or what's needed to do that from 2000 on, 
I think we could expect to achieve those goals. So we should still hope to get really close to them. Let me just throw it out to the audience. Um, could I have somebody who, who actually answered no to the question, maybe who'd be willing just to give a little bit of an account of why they, why they answered no? Richard Curtin, I think probably the issue of, of governance um, and participation was uh, omitted in the uh, Millennium Development Goals. With, with what kind of effect do you think, you know, does it make them somehow... Um... Well, well, the whole issue of aid effectiveness revolves around appropriate institutions to be able to deliver the aid, and unless you're monitoring how those institutions are improving their performance, then just putting more money into uh, trying to meet those targets doesn't necessarily give you a more effective result. You know, for example, one of the issues in education was that it was emphasising simply the completion of years mm. of education, primary education, but there was no emphasis on the quality of the education that was being delivered. It could well be that people get through primary school and are not uh, terribly literate. Okay, very good. Does someone else have a, a comment? And also, if you have a, a question that follows, it would also be very helpful. My name is Ian Anderson from the Asian Development Bank. I voted no because I think in retrospect, uh, we have lost the issue of equity, and especially mm -hmm. when we look at Asia. Um, some of those uh, goals will be achieved, but the bottom 20% will be largely neglected. So <coughs> equity would have been a really useful thing to have put into those MDGs. Okay, very good. Yeah, I voted no. Just, I mean, I firstly endorse the position. Yes, they'd be there, but they might look different. Um, but wondered too that in the last ten years, the the emerging power of the the BRICS countries, what impact that might have had on on MDGs if they're actually put together now. Um, particularly uh, thinking with the Latin American position on on development in general, that might have had a far greater uh, influence, more in there about equality and. and human rights and freedoms. Okay, very good. I just wanted that the reason why governance and corruption were treated very lightly in the same, uh, it's the same reason why uh, the targets for the developed countries in terms of their aid were treated very lightly. If they had been more specific and they had been more, uh, uh, they had asked more, then there would be no signatories to the to the millennium. It, it's a real poli real politic sort of thing, and and that's why as we go along, knowing that these are indeed the the obstacles, I think there should be greater recognition that we should uh, be more, shall we say, uh, be, be more specific or be more demanding about governance, corruption, both, both from the developed and the developing countryside. Because like yesterday, sorry, uh, like yesterday, oh boy, <laughs> yeah. Like yesterday, uh, when we were discussing when we were discussing the global financial crisis, there, there was the person who was discussing it was talking about possible reasons, and he did not mention that one of the reasons contributing to the financial crisis in the first place was poor governance and corruption, mm. in the, on the part of developed countries. In, in you know the old boys network with finance, so so people are just pussyfooting around it, and I think we've just gotta uh, just push. That's all. Okay, very good. Let me just bring it back for a moment. Bob, one of the points about the sort of MDGs in this, in the form that they have, is that they clearly focus on a series of of outputs. Well, there's a mixture of outputs and outcomes in there, but largely outputs. But they're very silent on the means. 
I mean, and of course, one argument is, well, there's not enough about growth, and we might come back to that again in a moment. But do you feel that that has been a has been a problem for the sort of implementation of the MDGs? No, I don't think it's being silent on the means because I think we ought to be flexible about the means. The means are not going to be the same everywhere, even though the goals are the same everywhere. So that doesn't worry me. But the point Richard and uh, uh, and Ian made, Archie's was a bit different, but uh, and and. The lady at the front, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. They're all looking at issues, but God, please, I just breeze in and out of this place. I don't do polite things like listen to other people. I'm sorry, I don't have time, but I would, it's very rude of me, I know, but that's the world I live in. Um, it's election year. Um, uh, I'm a bit worried about this green vote being 50%, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but but I like the blue one. <laughs> um, the, the serious point about that refers to all the four things they have and why, to some extent, it's going to be difficult to include them if we're remaking it, is a problem that I sometimes call the, the tyranny of the measurable. You just get, not the measurable, though sometimes they're the same thing, the tyranny of the measurable. You have to get goals you can measure, so you invent proxies for what you're really aiming for, and then you actually start pursuing the proxy, not the goal. And uh, But non-measurable goals don't have the mobilizing power of measurable goals, so there is an inadequacy around it, therefore, but it is, uh, unless we can measure some of these issues that... Uh, uh, of course, we can measure uh, equity, but the Gini coefficient index is pretty complicated, and I wouldn't want to be on a platform explaining that to people. But we do need to find ways of either making them measurable or just living with the fact that we've got to communicate the measurable things we have. Absolutely. Peter, I just wanted to bring you in on this issue of the kind of mobilizing power of the MDGs. Um, that has been quite remarkable. We heard in a session just prior to this discussion that, you know, this is not a matter just for public action, but also for private action. That you know, major corporates have embraced the MDGs quite quite forcefully. This this whole phenomenon is quite remarkable. Do you think you know this can hold together? Do you think that the Millennium Development Goals have attraction beyond 2015? Do they have a power that will endure? Well, I, I, oh, I, sorry. I think. Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry I asked you to, but go oh, ahead. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. Okay. Um, well, just briefly, uh, yes, um, I think they have been successful in, in that respect. They, they've given us uh, concrete targets that we can aim at and measure our progress by. And that's, that's really important to the people don't feel that this whole situation of global poverty is just such a vast, bottomless pit that we never make progress on, that they actually see that we do make progress. So I hope that um, sometime uh, by 2015, when we've come to the end of this process, we'll take stock of where we are, uh, assess which ones we've achieved, which ones we haven't, and we'll set ourselves a new and more ambitious target to achieve over the next 10 or 15 years, yeah. uh, so that it will be an ongoing process and we, we basically deal with global poverty in a stepwise manner. Telephonia, this was quite a unique moment in 2000 when the world community came together. Is it possible again, do you think, in 2015? Well, yes, uh, and I think it's very important uh, to recognize that it's got to be a post-215 uh, era as well, so things uh, can't all of a sudden stop in, in 215. But I think the, the important thing about the Millennium Development Goals is how interlinked they are. And, you know, Samoa is seen as one of the better performers uh, in the Pacific, and I, and I think 
the key probably to, to our good performance is, is our education ratio, 97% uh, for, for primary education, 99% uh, for uh, literacy. Uh, this means our women uh, are getting educated. So that translates into very good maternal mortality rates and infant mortality rates and gender equality. Th these are absolutely crucial. So I think that one of the things that comes out of studying and evaluating the outcomes of the MDGs is that there, 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 are other, there are goals that are much more important than others because they're the key to every other goal being successful. And I, I consider that the education one is pivotal uh, to everything, including re reducing the levels of HIV-AIDS. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm chairman of the Pacific AIDS Commission, and we've just completed a report. And it, it, the critical thing is, is education, and among, especially the education of, of women. Because if you educate and empower your women and em emancipate your women, you're going to get lower infant mortality rates, lower maternal mortality rates, and much more productive and happy families. Mm. Very good. That's a very good point. And uh, education here, many students come here, but have we thought here in Australia of our students going to the Pacific or going to the um, MDG, where the MDGs are being initiated? Okay. Uh, I voted yes on this question, but I thought it would be interesting to say why, uh, which is that when the original goals were developed, the question of whether they were realistic, especially within individual countries, wasn't a major factor in setting the targets. And in fact, um, from a historical perspective, they imply rates of progress in many countries that are just implausible. Uh, and so I don't think that new information about how they were even more, it turned out to be even more unrealistic than we might have thought, would change the choices that were made. It raises a question, though. Some of my colleagues at the Center for Global <coughs> Development in Washington have argued that by setting unrealistic targets for, for many very poor countries, it's, it's it set up a situation where they'll be cast as failures and that that's actually counterproductive. So I'm interested in this question of when is it, a danger, when is it good to set aspirational goals and when can it backfire? Mm. Okay, very good. Picking up on the issue of education, I believe there is a real possibility for private enterprise to cooperate with governments in the issue of education, and not only at the level of primary school. There are perhaps ways such as adopting the idea of the Pacific College for corporations to participate and receive perhaps even uh, mutual benefits benefit by addressing skill shortages in any country where the corporation and uh, the particular person who is uh, trained participates. Uh, I believe that while it's important to train people uh, at a primary education level, perhaps the steps could be taken further by allowing people to achieve a vocational education that later on will develop also employment. Okay, very good. Thank you. We're going to move on now to question two. So can I ask my friends to pose question two, please, up on the screen for you? The background to this is that, of course, uh, the MDGs were uh, conceived in a climate in which there was a sort of growing enthusiasm for the role of international development assistance in, in supporting uh, development. Uh, 2000 2002, the Monterey Conference, then Glen Eagles in 2005, made quite serious uh, step change commitments to the uh, amount of international development assistance that donor countries were willing to step up. Uh, since then, of course, we've seen something of a shortfall against those commitments, particularly those set in 2005. But we've also seen a kind of massive uh, takeoff of, of other forms of development financing. 
prior to the global financial crisis, uh, other financial flows were dwarfing international development systems by, um, you know, by, by, a, by a very significant factor uh, in, in, in developing countries. Since the global financial crisis, there's been some abatement of those flows, but there's also signs of a return, foreign direct investment, private equity investment, philanthropic flows, and so forth. So the question here is really, and it's intended to be controversial, to get a little bit of uh, discussion going, is are increases in aid flows critical to the achievement of the MDGs up to 2015. Now, we could have asked this question in 2005, and everybody probably in the room would have said yes. I'm interested to know in 2010 whether or not we still think this. So, could I ask you please to vote? <laughs> okay, so 62% um, of, of you have voted yes. 33% no, and 5% uh, don't know. Um, Bob, what's your reaction to that? Well, I won't make any comments about green votes and things. Uh, I've been there. Um, I feel a bit like uh, Peter in response to the last question. I mean, it, it, the key question is what you mean by critical. Are they necessary? Yes, they are. Are they sufficient? No, they're not. I mean, I think that's the situation. And are they the most important thing? No, probably not. Well, well not probably not. No, they're not. Mm. Um, but they are, but it won't happen without it, uh, both for economic reasons and political reasons. If the developed countries don't deliver, the outcome won't be achieved. But if they do deliver and that's all that happens, they won't be achieved either. Okay. Telephony, what do you feel about that? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's very important that, uh, that the aid flows continue, and it's very important that, that they increase. But, but I think the, the current debate on, on aid effectiveness uh, is, is, is very significant, and I think it's very, very important. And I think it, 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 it offers very good uh, lessons in terms of how to move to move forward, because I think uh, it's now recognized that it's not just the volume of aid that is important, but also the the way in which that aid is, is, is used, and indeed the way in which that aid is absorbed. And the absorption capacity of the countries that are receiving the aid, I think, is, is, is very, very important. And also the determinants of the factors that uh, that guide the, the implementation of, of that aid is, is also very, very important. Very good. I mean, what's implied in this question, Peter, is sort of increases in official, official development assistance, yes. and I probably should have clarified <coughs> that. You were talking this morning also about people just digging into their pockets and giving and supporting through a whole variety of sort of different mechanisms. But particularly on official development assistance, do you see that as being increases in that as being critical? Um, I do think that that's important, yes. In, in that sense, I would agree with what the, the two uh, more honorable gentlemen to my left have, um, have said. Um, uh, I think, I think it, it, it is an essential that, that we have the increases that were basically were, were, were promised, and uh, all the costings suggest that increases need. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs's costings, for example, as to how much it takes, suggest that we do need more than we've got. But I also would, would agree that uh, it has to be effective, and we really have to make sure that we have... Uh, better ways of evaluating what works. I mean, it's starting to run out of time now with only five years to go to do that, but, but we really have to focus on what we know is working. As an example uh, of what I meant about 
it's not enough. And we all immediately think about some very complicated things. But in the Pacific and in other, other countries in Asia, if we did more about facilitating the generation and cheap transmission of remittances, we'd probably do more mm. than we do by aid. I'm not saying it's a substitute, but uh, particularly in the Pacific, the, the fees for transmission absorb an enormous amount of the very good effort that people come and work in Australia and New Zealand in particular, send back to the Pacific and some corporations do very well, but the families don't get nearly as much as they should. Yes, absolutely. Let me open it up a bit. I already have two comments here, one here and then one at the back. Thank you, uh, Ian Buchanan. I'm the, not an aid expert, but I've spent 38 years working in the Asia-Pacific, and 10 of those were running Stanford Research Institute. So my history there goes back to the Cold War. Questions about the effectiveness of aid and whether it's declined. So back in the Cold War, a lot of the aid that I saw used in the Asia-Pacific was around institutional reform and building the institutional capacity to absorb and be more effective with smaller amounts of official flows. What I observe today, not as an expert, so I don't know if it's right or a micro um, sample, is that a lot of the aid is going much more to grassroots, and so it's helping in a way which is e easily measurable, but I don't believe as sustainable. So the question is, is the observation correct? And can the official aid institutions, such as OSAID, do a much better job at actually mobilizing public-private leadership of aid in order to go in and build much better institutional capacity in the countries in the region, which will give you hugely better effectiveness of the aid that does come in? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, hi, everyone. Barry Coates from, from Oxfam. I, uh, I think the question um, presupposes um, the, the centrality of aid in a way that uh, I think Bob McMullen's quite right. Things like remittances and the low cost of remittances uh, um, and often foreign direct investment can, can be important. But I think um, I'd like to come back to what Peter Singer said this morning around um, did we have a role in putting the child into the pond who we're now trying to save? And I think one thing that's really changed over the past few years is climate change, is the sense in which the Pacific and, and East Asia as well are being hit by multiple crises that are not of their own making. Uh, financial crisis, the food price rises, uh, climate change. And I think that, that there is a change in the, in the role of aid uh, within the fulfillment of the MDGs. And I, I think, you know, a lot of, of the debate underlying the effectiveness of aid is also about is this the main instrument in our ability to affect the achievement of MDGs in the poorest countries? Or are there some other things that we should be doing in order to essentially create the conditions whereby countries will be able to achieve the MDGs? Excellent. Thanks very much. Wendy John, the question being, are increases in aid flows critical to the achievement of MDGs? Uh, I would be so bold as to suggest that the higher number of yes answers might reflect the higher number of government persons in the room, uh, not coming from that sector at the moment. I think that the level of aid that has been contributed to the world stage has been sufficient. It's how it's been used and how accountably it's been used. That is a huge question. I'm also uh, a supporter of Dambis and Boyo's work, Dead Aid, which would suggest that capital investment uh, has been far more effective and is, is the way forward with regards to pulling countries out of states of, to use an old phrase, underdevelopment and into a new millennium. 
there's enough aid, we're just not accountable for how it's being used and we're not using it in the right way. Very good, thanks. Thank you, Emile Ndududuranga. Um, in fact, I was going to say yes and no, and that's because I, I think that if we accept the paradigm that the civil society could be the engine room for accelerating the MDG achievement, then um, there needs... Uh, uh, Honourable Macmillan uh, mentioned yesterday that most of governments, uh, presumed governments, uh, income do not come, or when we look at GNI, it doesn't come from aid. But in fact, most civil society and NGOs' total income come from aid, and so I kind of agree with the person in the front seat that it's, it's critical that that continues, if not increase. But I also wanted to add to the first question that I think a lot of the MDGs are about dealing with the symptoms. We, we haven't begun to look at the root causes. Very good. Garth Luke, World Vision. I'd question that in the real world there is enough aid. Maybe if we had a perfect situation where aid money was spent very effectively, that would be the case. But we know that lots of it goes you know, to Australian universities to train people here, or it goes to consultants, et cetera, et cetera. So the amount that actually gets to the ground, to the people who need it, is probably quite low. But when it does do that, it makes a huge impact. So we still only have 40% of people who need antiretroviral treatment receiving it. Um, uh, I can't see how immediately that's going to be achieved by um, any, any other way than increased aid. And the evidence with malaria is very clear that when money gets there and there's sufficient resources and it gets to the people who need it through bed nets, effective treatment makes a huge difference. We've had huge decreases in deaths and infections from malaria in the last five years. Absolutely. So it's not about more, it's about more accountable aid. Do you agree with that? Well, uh, you know, I, I think the issue about capacity that has been raised is, is very, very important. As, as, as chairman of the AIDS Commission, I, I went and launched our report with uh, Governor General Sopolis Matane in uh, PNG about two months ago. And there I learned that the, they'd missed out totally on about 7 million kina worth of global fund, uh, funding for antiviral drugs because you know, of the, the paperwork just hadn't been done, the accountability just hadn't been done. And I totally threw away the speech that I was supposed to give at the launch and, and, and address this issue. And it led to the Minister of Finance getting up and saying, no, we'll fund it. We'll fund the 7 million. Because I found, talking about NGOs, that all the relief agencies were panicking because AusAid will, will fund help towards AIDS, but they won't actually fund the drugs. So, you know, this issue of capacities is, is very, very, uh, very, very important because it's the same thing with our NGOs. A lot of them, um, uh, just if I can briefly just talk about the civil society, they do a tremendous amount of work. For instance, in things like gender violence, in, 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 in things like uh, there, there's no one else knows how to do it better. Governments shouldn't be in that field. But the people that are passionate about it are in the field. But they're not accountants. So they get 100000 from AusAid, and uh, they don't keep the receipts. They don't account back for it, so they get chopped off. So what, what we need to do, I think uh, Emily agrees, is, is to build their capacity so that they have accounting firms available to them. And, and these grassroots uh, work that are, that are happening at all these different levels are definitely making a difference in, in society. If you, if you distribute uh, uh, tanks, water tanks, to people who don't have water, if, if you send out, uh, if you help build a small little preschool for, for, for a place that's uh, isolated, uh, all this sort of thing has a tremendous impact and will lift living standards. Mm. Absolutely. Peter, what do you feel about this, this point that in the end, it, you know, it's not about more aid, it's just 
aid delivered more effectively and more accountably? Well, I, I, I still think it's both. I, I think, as Gareth um, um, said from, from World Vision, I, I think there are, there are clear things that we know what works. Um, we are doing it to some extent, but we haven't covered everyone. Uh, and in those cases, we need more resources because it is something of a scandal, I think, that we have uh, the knowledge to prevent somebody dying, um, we have the means to prevent someone dying, but these people, year after year, they're still dying because we haven't put the resources together to, to get it out to them. When, when we live such comfortable lives and we spend these resources, as, as somebody pointed out in one of the sessions, you know, vastly more we're spending to save the lives of Australians than we spend to save the lives of people in other countries. And even if we don't talk about saving lives, we're talking about, um, you know, we import Italian bottled water, I'm sorry to say, um, when the water that comes out of the tap in Sydney is actually drinkable, if you didn't know that. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think it is a scandal that, that we're not putting more resources um, into these things than... Uh, uh, when the need is there and when the ability is there. But Bob, you know, not all aid is about life support. Some of it is about, quite a lot of it is actually about very difficult processes of economic and social change and trying to catalyze and support those. And part of the bad rap around aid comes from the fact that what it's trying to support is very complex change. You know, what do you feel about that? Is, is, is the argument that we should ditch all that somehow because it clearly doesn't work and look to alternative financial uh, forms of support? No, I, I think we have to admit, uh, more than admit, state boldly that this is a really difficult thing we're trying to do. And there will be failures as well as successes. I mean, we put this process in the hands of people. Therefore, when, when you have a thousand things going on, being conducted by a group of human beings and human institutions, some of them won't work. I've got a big shock for some people. Sometimes the private sector does a thousand things and some of them don't work, you know, I, uh, including in the banking system. So, I mean, it, does, it is just, that's the way the world is, you know, people make mistakes. But I think we're creating a false dichotomy between this question about whether there's sufficient and whether it ought to be used better. I think that's an entirely bogus argument. Uh, I think it's, Peter referred, I won't duplicate, but I think it's demonstrably untrue that there's sufficient aid, but it's also demonstrably true that we ought to use it better. Mm. Um, and that uh, things like private investment flows are more important, but you won't get private investment flows to countries that people don't want to invest in. There's lots of countries where investment is free. Is free it, people are free to go in and invest, but nobody goes because there's nobody wants to live there because there's no health system. They don't have trained people. Um, so it is uh, it, the interaction between those two three things is critical. But you can't say, oh well, we just stop doing this one and we'll, that, that that other one will fill the space. I think that's demonstrably untrue. Very good. Just a couple of points then for the audience before we go on to our final question. I thought that no, because there is no button that where I can put uh, push one and two together. Uh, of course, I agree that uh, there's a need of increase of aid flow, but I think uh, looking at MDGs at this now which I translated as minimum development goals, that should be covered by our own governments, by our own uh, budget. Yeah. And the world is not getting better by only halving the poor or give water and sanitation to also half. I've presented that yesterday. So that's why I voted for no. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Nigel Spence, Child Fund. If we look at sort of, uh, public um, surveys of public opinion, uh, consistently in Australia we find that 
Australians do believe aid is effective and do consistently say more should be given, and that's been the case now for, for many years. At the same time, surveys typically find that Australians are unsure whether things are actually getting any better, and most think perhaps that they're remaining the same or getting worse. So they seem to be able to live with the notion that aid is effective, but at the same time it's not in and of itself enough. Mm. But how the question is how important is that popular support? The It was terribly important in 2000 and 2005, and grassroots campaigning was really critical to some of those decisions. Is, is 2015 a big risk in terms of a, a major shift in popular support for aid? Okay, very good. I mean, I don't know if any of you have a particular view on that before I move on to a, another question. Well, I think Nigel's right. There's a, there's a serious risk, and uh, it's a tough debate, and we just have to win it. And one of the parts of winning it is, and that's why the Millennium Development Goals are so important as measures, is we have to be able to tell people success stories. Now, we can't tell them success stories that say there's no problem. We have to tell them success stories that says we're making progress. That's why measurability is important, even though sometimes it's frustrating, because what it is we have to measure. Yeah. But we have to win the debate. It's a very critical debate that's going to go on in a tough one. Good. Okay, we're going to move on to our third question now, and it's a sort of extension. But it basically buys, it reflects the debate that has been raging for a while that, you know, yes, aid is important, but in the end, the biggest change agent in delivering the MDGs will actually be growth and uh, more inclusive growth for that too. And that at the moment there has been insufficient focus on how to power up sustainable growth, particularly in low-income countries. Uh, and the question is really, should we be focusing less on you know, aid in, in certainly its more traditional forms and much more about how aid can play a role in, in supporting uh, strong, sustainable growth. So the question for you here is going forward, should there be a stronger focus on growth and the accelerators of economic development for achieving the MDGs? Can I ask you to vote now, please? Right. I don't know if you've noticed on each question, the percentages of yes have been going up quite significantly. Um, but happily, the blues have been uh, way down there every, every time. Um, <laughs> now, of course, inevitably, because we have to ask you questions that elicit yes-no responses, we end up oversimplifying and creating some of these false dichotomies. But for the purpose of, of getting this discussion going, uh, Bob, growth has been the big missing piece here. We just need to refocus our attention on that and a lot more will happen. I would have voted yes, but not because I think we really need to change what, how, what we spend aid on, but because we need to focus on things that are more important, like trade. I, I absolutely think the most important thing we can do, and Misha and I have been working together on it in the Pacific, and it, but it's true globally, we would do much more by fixing up the trade situation than we will by... Uh, focusing on aid. I'm not saying aid shouldn't have a role in enhancing economic growth, it should, but it's not going to be the trigger. People, but no one ever got rich without selling something to somebody, right? So uh, that, no country, you know, that doesn't work. The country, there's a few countries tried to get rich by keeping 
barriers up and excluding themselves from the world. I can think of about three, uh, North Korea, uh, Burma, um, they're really success stories. And um, they've turned themselves from wealthy countries to poor countries, and I wouldn't advocate it. We've got to open up economies to the world, and uh, trade is the, is the key, and that's what I think we should focus on. That's why I'd have voted yes. I mean, obviously, it's a more complex answer, but if you want why I'd have voted yes, that's why. Okay, good. Peter, if we look at you know globally, the big success stories and the ones in this region, China, Vietnam, Indonesia, about reducing poverty, it's all been growth-led, hasn't it? Well, the question is what we want to actually achieve. And um, I, I was impressed by Jenny Klugman's presentation yesterday in which she showed that um, there isn't really such a strong correlation between improvements in health and improvements in education um, uh, with economic growth. And, uh, you know, when we talk about what is it that we want to achieve through, through aid and poverty reduction, I think we obviously do want to improve people's health. We do want to make sure that people can get an education. And they seem to be more key to me than, than that they have greater incomes. Um, because sometimes, I mean, there's lots of evidence that suggests that producing greater income, while it can be important, um, isn't always going to make people happier, really. And so it may be that sometimes we're forcing uh, an economic growth model on societies because it some way makes them more like us, but really we'd be bringing them more benefit if we focused on uh, health and education and some other key indices of human welfare uh, that are not correlated with economic growth. Yes, I, I totally agree with Professor Singer and, and uh, with Bob. Uh, the, the, the critical factor about growth is that it ha there has to be growth with equity. And I think we all know now that not all growth uh, translates into improved standards of living. If, if you have growth and only the top 5% of society have grown, your, your top 5% of your fat cat uh, wealthy people, and if all the growth goes to them, then to me that, that growth hasn't really benefited anybody. So there needs to be a proactive effort to make sure that the growth goes to the people that need it most, the people in the lower, the lower echelons of, uh, of society. And I think the, the, the point about trade is, is also very, very important. Um, just on the growth thing, I think Professor Zen uh, said it best, uh, this very eminent economist from India yesterday. He said, India is very big on growth, but very poor on MDGs. And that's another indication of this point that uh, that uh, that Professor that Jenny Klugman said. Uh, you know, it, 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 not all growth means you're going to get better health and education services. But on the question of of trade, we, we, we've been pushing uh, the the PESA Plus uh, agenda very very aggressively now, and and yet there's a whole lot of doubts out there that there are. There are motives that are not honorable, and, and yet we've been making the point very, very uh, forcefully that there, there's already, in the case of New Zealand, if I can use that as an example, a billion dollars is being exported from New Zealand a year to the Pacific Island countries, and only 100,000 is getting imported in back, back in, and that's before any free trade agreement. So, in fact, the trade imbalances are already there. So the, the, the issue, really, of the so-called hardship to Pacific Island countries from this trade agreement is all to do with, with government revenues because they're, they're relying wrongly on, on import duties as, as a form of raising government revenues. What we've done in Samoa is shifted to GST. So in fact, we've totally eliminated the need to have import duties as a source of government revenues. And if you're heading towards becoming a member of WTO, that's the way you've got to go. But to, to say that, that this PESA Plus agreement is, is a way of trying to exploit the islands, uh, from the point of view of New Zealand and Australia, I think 
is 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 grossly unfair and and unfounded and and untrue. But I think the the important thing that we need to understand and and uh, the Honourable Simon Crean uh, just two weeks ago agreed to. Uh, uh, to derogate the the imports from our Yazaki factory into Toyota in in Melbourne, and you probably know that we have a two thousand jobs in Samoa that rely on on uh, the strong survival of your Toyota factory in Melbourne, because we we prepare all the the wire harnessing uh, for that factory, and in fact we're one of the few Pacific Island countries that has a trade surplus uh, with Australia. But this is the kind of inter interdependence that we we need to we need to we need to uh, develop. Uh, we have three hundred workers picking apples in three thousand workers picking apples in in New Zealand, and they're getting the minimum wage. They're getting the good working conditions, and I think that's the critical factor. Now, again, there's a lot of criticism. Uh, why are, you ha are they having to bring apple pickers from from the Pacific Islands? It, it doesn't bother us that that the average Kiwi may not want to go and pick apples. That doesn't bother us at all. Our people love doing it. They're coming over. They're not getting exploited. They're getting the they're getting the more than or the minimum wage, and I think that's the critical factor. And the same thing will happen if we if we get work here in Australia. Uh, and and you know you keep asking the question. Well, you you do have unemployed here, so why do you need our workers? So the, the fact is that there it's particular work that your people may not be prepared or willing to do, and it doesn't bother us that we come to New Zealand and pick apples because there are Kiwis that don't want to, to pick apples. Uh, you know it, we're very very happy to do it, and I think this is this is the kind of partnership that I think I was talking about. At the end of the day, if there are problems in the aid agenda. It's not just for the donors to, to take the blame or for the donors to sit back and review. It's for the donors to work in partnership with we, the developing world, to make sure that, that we improve the level of absorption, that we improve the effectiveness, and, and this has to be the way that this process works. Very good. Let me open it up a little bit. Archie Law from ActionAid. Um, I think growth may be one of the prerequisites, but I think it's been pointed out by the panel, it's it's really growth through social justice that is the key um, if growth is actually involved in the equation. what One thing I'd like to mention that's critical to all of this is the role of the state, because I don't think we've really touched on that so much. There's been decades of rolling back um, government, uh, the role of government in the economy in favour of a free market, um, when maybe we need to look at an alternate model. Um, how do we have a more active state that's more engaged in, in service delivery? Um, and particularly the role of the state in actually uh, collecting taxation revenue, which I, I think is another critical issue that hasn't really been explored when that's estimated to be, it's actually potentially more than FDI aid and remittances put together. Yeah, very good. Professor San over here. Well, I voted against it, and for a very simple reason, and that is, if aid is not as good as it should be in achieving MDGs, it's definitely no good at all to achieve higher growth. Mm. I think the evidence on that is so strong in everything we did before 2000, the aid is not particularly a good way, I and mean, trade is much better. On the other hand, MDGs, again, are not for those who are giving aid. It's also for those who are receiving it. The signal that the MDGs give to countries receiving, or countries we don't need too much, but tell you 
that growth is simply a vehicle for doing first things first, MDG is a much better idea than trying to say, let's give to get aid to have higher growth. That doesn't work. Okay, very good. Although that literature is wonderfully controversial, isn't it? We could have a whole day on that, but anyway, we won't. <laughs> Hello, Clyde McConaughey from the Institute for Economics and Peace. Um, I spent all of last Thursday at the UN in, in New York, in fact, presenting on potential funding of MDG goals. And it's it's interesting, the, the financial crisis over the last two and a half years has certainly given the world time to rethink how it might actually focus on economic development. And many people might or might not be aware that the OECD is currently conducting a project, has been for the last two years, on what, in fact, economic progress is, as you suggested, happiness or various other things, but that's a broader debate. But um, I think the, the current, the outcome of that is that it does give the world food for thought and time to pause as to what economic development should be. And I think perhaps that the economic development should be focused on with the MDGs in mind, which it wasn't actually 10 years ago when the MDGs were founded. Now, the MDGs cost about $100 billion a year to fund, so it's not really a lot of money. And uh, some of the research we did recently highlighted that the opportunity cost, economic opportunity cost of a reduction in violence, which is one of the things that the Institute focuses on, uh, is about $4 trillion, $4 trillion dollars per annum. So funding $100 billion a year when you've got an opportunity cost of reduction to violence of $4 trillion per annum does give us the opportunity to focus on economic development with the MDGs in mind, which is a position we haven't had before as a world. Thanks. Yeah, great. Potentially massive rate of return to every aid investment. Elizabeth Carpenter, National Council of Women. Um, I was very disappointed to see the percentage, the percentage was very low on business representation at such an august um, meeting as this with the learned people that are, are in this group. Business, you cannot leave commerce and industry and economics out of the development of, the, of those people at the grassroots who in another 10 years will, be, will have achieved a great deal more than they've achieved today. So economics, um, commerce is very, very important for the development in these countries. Thank you, Derek Bryan from the Pacific Institute of Public Policy uh, based in Vanuatu. I just wanted to ask maybe if we have uh, or we need to consider the language of the debate or even the language of the industry. If so much of aid is uh, as many on the panel and, and the discussions, it is a very complex uh, group of tools that we use. And if so much is used for things such as accelerators of economic development, rightly or wrongly, um, should be re we be rolling back the brand that has become aid, AusAid, UK aid, USAID and, and so on, that maybe is clouding people's ex expectations and uh, and perceptions of of what this industry is about. Well, do you, do you agree with that? Have we got a bit of a PR problem in I here? I think the key point of that is that we have to be careful we don't overclaim, that we don't say that we are going, if we get to 0 0.7 we're going to solve everything, uh, or that developing countries can solve any, everything whatever they do. I, I'm not sure about the branding, but I think that that's an important... There are two sides of the communication challenge, and it goes back to the earlier question about the debate up to 2015 as well. It's all... it's interrelated questions. If we only talk about the problem, and then about how much money we're spending on it, and don't talk about the successes, will fail in communications, but if we try and oversell it and say, oh, everything's going fantastically, people are going to see the reality. This is a wide open world. People see the reality on their computer screens and on their TV screens, and if we try and tell them we've solved everything, they will 
uh, you know, they'll certainly conclude the party significantly premature. So there is, uh, there's validity in the point, but uh, it is about not pretending that we can do more than we can, uh, but not, but we, on the other side of that, can we must not fail to communicate the tremendous successes. I mean, just about Vanuatu, the success that the government of Vanuatu, with us and others, have had in reducing the rate of malaria is just a fantastic story to tell, and we don't tell enough people about it. Peter, do you have a? Um, I think probably on this issue, what I've what I would have to say has been said by, mm. by various people. Telephony. I mean, Samoa has put a lot of emphasis on the economic development part of this story of, of, of growing, you know, uh, significantly. Um, but there's been an argument that it has to be growth through social justice or growth with equity you've made yourself. What does that look like? What is the kind of public policy package that needs to support growth that also addresses issues of equity? Well, uh, for instance, we, we've recently put a lot of emphasis into the tourism industry. Uh, and, and the reason is that the, the, the tourism industry, uh, we believe, firstly, is a great the greatest supporter of our agriculture industry. Uh, we are now, our farmers are now not able to even produce enough fresh fruit, fresh tropical fruit, and that's a major challenge uh, for them. In terms of employment, uh, it's, a, it's a very high and very good employer of unskilled workers. You know, they're easily trained housekeepers, ground keepers, even uh, entertainers, and then you have the subsidiary industries that rely on it, taxi drivers, rental cars. Uh, the other important thing about the tourism industry is that if you develop resorts out in the out of areas, uh, they keep employment out there because, this, as you may have heard, the urban drift is causing a lot of crime and problems in not only in, in New Zealand and Australia but also in, in island communities because these these youth that are uh, coming into the cities are, uh, haven't got their parents to control them. But the the the, the social issues that that that, that are important. Uh, is, is the key to, to a stable and, and harmonious society. And I keep telling our merchant classes, if, if a man can't put uh, bread on his table for, for his family, he's going to break your door down and, and, and take it from you. And, and the fact of the matter is that you can have ten times the police force, but if you don't have good equitable distribution of income amongst your society, you are not going to have a stable a society. Very good. Right, we're coming to the end. Uh, it's been an interesting uh, hour or so. Um, we have got one final question for you. Um, some of you will have come into this room with particular views about whether or not aid uh, is ultimately the most important weapon in the fight against global poverty reduction or not. Some of you might have come in with a view that you've slightly moderated in the last hour. Um, some of you will come in with a view that, you know, really aid really isn't the answer here and we need to move beyond and think much more uh, uh, broadly about different forms of support for global poverty reduction. We thought we'd just finalize the discussion today by asking you to vote on our final question, which is whether in 2015, the point when the MDGs will be basically looking at the final scorecard on the MDGs uh, as they were put together in 2000, will aid still be critically important weapon, a critically important weapon in the fight for global poverty reduction or not? Would you like to vote, please?
81% of you think it will. So we need to go forth from here and make sure that it is as effective as it possibly can be, because clearly there's a strong consensus that, at least in this room, we could be having a discussion in 2015, which is still very much focused on the role of aid in the fight against global poverty. I want to thank very, very much indeed the Honourable Deputy Prime Minister from Samoa, Bob McMullen here from Australian Government and Peter Singer for their contributions to this debate. I want to thank all of you for playing along with us and, and playing with our new technology. Um, thank you very much indeed.